Father, thank you so much for this church and for the people of it and the, the ministries that spring out of the hearts and the desires of the people in our church, much like this ministry with the Early Bird Fellowship sprung out of a home group, a group of people who uh, love you and want to uh, do their best to help make this a welcoming place. And Lord, we have other ministries in our church, and we want to continue to pray for them. Uh, Lord, I would lift up to you uh, our prayer ministry in this church, that we have uh, so many people that have needs, and sometimes that can feel overwhelming. But to be able to pass those on to the elders and to pass those on to our prayer tree and to pray for people uh, in the service and then our uh, Wednesday night prayer time, Lord, and our prayer time on Sunday evenings as well. Just uh, such a blessing to know that we're a church that's uh, so filled with prayer, that we have so many people that are desiring to pray. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, continue to strengthen the people who pray, that you would bring more people with a desire to pray, uh, Lord, that you would uh, be hearing and answering the prayers of the people in this church. And Father, we thank you also uh, for um, the uh, outreaches we get, Lord, with the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'm so thankful for them and uh, the work that they do in the schools, Lord. Uh, what a powerful opportunity to be in our schools, our public schools, and uh, to be able to preach the word and uh, share the gospel with uh, young folks uh, that are involved in those uh, activities and then the ministries that they do even beyond that, Lord. Uh, just thankful for them and their leadership. I'm thankful for Cody and Leanne, his wife, who oversee that and the various board members that they have. Uh, Lord, I thank you for our deacons that are always serving in our church, that uh, so many of them uh, get here early and stay late so that they can make sure that the rest of us can enjoy a Sunday morning service or a Wednesday night service and that they're uh, often there to help in other opportunities when there's times of need. Uh, Lord, we pray for other churches in town. We realize that we're not the only one. I pray for Jay Meyer and the Vineyard Church and uh, Lord, they've uh, struggled to find a place of their own in this city, that there'd be a place for them where their church could meet long term, that would be an answer to prayer for them, uh, an opportunity for them to continue to grow as a ministry, that you would give wisdom to Pastor Jay and to the ministry team there. Father, this morning as we get into your word, we would just ask that you would open it up to us, that your word would uh, become evident and clear, that you would take away uh, all the distractions in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. Uh, the, the worries and the temptations and the struggles that you would prevent Satan from having any control over this room, uh, that he have no opportunity to snatch away your word from people, uh, that you would uh, give us good soil and good hearts and good ears to hear from you. Uh, we would pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we are. We're in Mark chapter 4. We've been working our way through the uh, gospel of Mark here, and uh, this is uh, the book where it's telling us about Jesus in action. So let's get right to the action this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand open and uh, someone will bring one to you. But we're in uh, Mark chapter four. It says this in verse one. Uh, he began to teach again by the sea and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying them, in his teaching. And so now we have Jesus uh, beginning to use parables in his ministry. Now, if you remember the circumstances of, from last week, wherever he's going now, he's essentially being mobbed. There's just crowds of people coming in and crowding around him, and they're not all there to hear the sermon. Many of them want to be healed. Many of them just want to be near him. Many of them are just there for the show, hoping for something amazing to happen. And they would press in against him and all those who wanted to be healed were trying to touch him if you could imagine a sermon like that when you're trying to preach this is why we have some artificial barriers i have the stairs here it's kind of just a reminder like this this is my little domain here and everybody has their seats all nice neat in a row which prevents people from crushing forward right and so all these little things that we do there's a reason for that right it's not just for your comfort it's for my comfort as well uh, but this is what jesus was doing as he was getting all of these crowds what he would do is he would invite them down to the shore to preach and they would all get on the shoreline and then he would get in a boat just a little way back. And that's actually a pretty powerful method of preventing the crowds from getting to him. It also makes it easier to hear the message. If you imagine Jesus trying to preach and all these people pressed in against him, the people in the back would never hear any of it. But as he gets on the boat, he'd be elevated a little bit. He'd have the amplification of the water. And his message now is going to be easier to hear by the people that are there on the shore. So it was a great crowd control method. But he's going to do something else here to kind of control the crowd. And that is, it says, he's going to begin to teach in parables. Now, we need to kind of rethink a little bit how we understand parables. 
Jesus will cover this pretty clearly uh, here in a little bit. But what I first want you to see is just what a parable is. A parable in, in the original language means to throw alongside. And the way that this would work is they would take a very practical, daily, understood thing and they would throw a spiritual concept beside it. In a sense, it's an illustration, but you're going to see Jesus using it for the opposite reason we do. Uh, As pastors, we use illustrations to make things more understandable. You're going to find out that really wasn't Jesus' goal. He wasn't attempting to make things more understandable. He's actually attempting to divide out the crowd to help them recognize which ones actually cared about his teaching. And we'll go about that uh, here in a little bit more detail as we get into it, but we just want to take this passage in the order that it's in here. So Jesus is now going to give a parable from a preaching perspective as an expert in pastoral preaching. And you say, how do you know you're an expert, Sean? Because if you do anything over and over and over and over for 20 years, by nature, you're an expert. In fact, you would be considered a master if you've preached as many sermons as I have, uh, not because I'm some great and amazing person, just because you do it enough times, they account what a master is by the number of hours you do something, and I am a master by following those hours, just by looking at that. And so I may not be good at it, but I have mastered it either way, right? Because I've met the required number of hours. But here's the thing. He's doing it all wrong, (laughs) right? Like, think about what's about to happen here. If you're going to try to teach something, a spiritual insight, uh, you need to have a big idea, right? Like, you got to come in this and you present the theme of the concept, the spiritual idea that you want to teach, then you illustrate it, then you hammer it at home with some application at the end. Well, Jesus is messing this all up. He's got this crowd of people. He goes up. He doesn't explain what he's about to do. He just tells a story, and then he never explains the story. Doesn't that feel wrong to you? Listen to this. This is the way this works out. Remember, he's got a crowd of people here. And in verse 3, he tells a very common known. And for us, it's kind of cheating because we already know the answer, right? Like we've already been through this parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, But imagine you're hearing this for the first time. You've come out to hear Jesus preach. And he gives you this story. He says, listen to this. The sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some of the seed fell beside the road, and the the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because of it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came and choked it and yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced it, produced it, produced 30, 60, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. End of sermon. He told a story, didn't explain it, gave them no context. End of sermon. Now imagine you're sitting here, you've come all the way down to the shore to hear from this amazing guy, Jesus. You can hear what he has to say. And he shares this story about farming. And then he just stops. And so the farmers in the crowd are going, man, that was powerful. <laughs> like he, he, he really he hammered that home. I now know that I need to get home and make sure I'm doing a good job of planting all of my seed in the right soil. Because if I don't, my crops are not going to yield enough. I'm so thankful that Jesus came into the world to tell me to plant my seeds in good soil. And the salesman thinks to himself, hey, that was good stuff. I'm going to get into the manure business. I'm going to help all of these farmers by selling them fertilizer to improve their soil. And if I work this just right, I might be able to get Jesus to be a celebrity endorsement. The fertilizer that Jesus uses. Think about that. The salesmen are like just licking their chops like this is amazing. And then you have the politicians. You know, he's right about that. We got too many people. 
sowing their seed in the wrong type of soil. Got to put an end to this. Can't have it. Not on my watch. I'm going to go back. I'm going to drop some, res- some legislation. I'm going to put an end to this wasteful seed sowing. That's going to be my new campaign promise. I'm going to start to regulate it in such a way. First of all, you're not going to be able to sow seed until you fill out the proper paperwork. Jesus has inspired. So after I have everybody fill out that form, on there, there's going to be some requirements. You're going to have to prove to me that there's not too many rocks per acre of land in your soil. And in addition to that, we're going to have to measure the quality of that soil because of this fine teaching of Jesus. And then the housewife is going, yep, that sermon was for my husband too. (laughs) Threw that in there for you, ladies. (laughs) Just like all the other sermons, my husband needs to hear this. But that's just kind of the end of it. Like the crowd is just there and he just kind of gives this story, this parable about farming and he doesn't explain himself to the crowd. So you imagine his disciples now, they were probably in the boat with him and as he's preaching, they're going, come on, bring it, testify Jesus, hallelujah. I mean, the disciples are getting into it because they're his guys, right? And then the sermon's over. They have rightly appreciated his sermon, and here's what they say. As soon as he was alone, so the crowds are gone now, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. They went to him and said, so what, did, what were we amening again? What's the deal with the stories? I'm having trouble understanding what you're doing here, Jesus. And so in verse 11, he says something mysterious and spooky. In verse 11, when they asked about the parables, he said to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven." Oh, well, that clears it up. And I, I mean, I imagine it builds up the disciples at first. His followers are like, Jesus, what's the deal with the parables? And Jesus is like, here's the deal. I have given to you the mystery of the kingdom. And I imagine for a minute they went, oh, well, look at us. We've got the mystery of the kingdom. They still have no idea what the parable means, mind you. But they have the mystery of the kingdom. Ah. Oh. This won't last very long before they realize they still don't have a clue what he's talking about. Jesus is then going to quote to them Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, this, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Now again, just from a pastoral perspective, let me just say this, Jesus Getting them to understand is kind of the purpose of a sermon. Getting them to return, to repent, and to be forgiven, it's kind of the goal of the message. Isn't that kind of what I'm trying to do here every week? Jesus is saying, I'm actually trying not to make it too easy for them to hear. I'm actually taking it to such an extent that it's not going to be simple for them to comprehend. He's allowing them to have this difficulty in understanding. And I believe he's doing it for a reason. Now, some people would look at this and say that Jesus was using parables to blind and to deafen the people so that they couldn't see or that they couldn't hear. But what I think Jesus is actually doing is using the parables to reveal to people that they were blind, to reveal to people that they weren't willing to hear, that they were unable to hear or see spiritual things because they didn't really care unless it was easy. And the difference between the followers of Jesus and the crowd was the crowd went home and they adjusted their farming practices. The followers came back to Jesus and said, huh, what does that mean? And immediately Jesus knew he was able to divide the crowd into the two groups, those who were truly seeking to know the things of the spiritual world and those who were just there for the show. 
it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, am I trying too hard as a pastor? Like maybe I'm trying just too hard to make things understandable. I couldn't even tell the parable without putting pictures up on the board. Like I have to do all of these things, trying very hard to make sure everybody understands everything. And I feel like if not everyone in the room understands everything, that I've somehow failed as a pastor. And of course, we have years of church history to prove that because if pastors don't do a good enough job of preaching the word in such a way that everybody understands it, those pastors often get replaced. And people will leave the sermon and they'll go to lunch and they'll say, boy, pastor bombed today. I mean, he was off. He he missed the whole thing. And don't think I don't know this, but because I used to sit where you guys sit, I know this because I've, I've done it. I've been the armchair pastor. And I found actually, this is actually an interesting thing, I have found those who want to be pastors in the future and those who are currently pra- pastors are some of the worst armchair pastors in the world. They are the most critical armchair pastors in the world. We have kind of this arrogance about us. Well, I know the word, and that, my friends, was not the word. I know how to preach, and I could have done that passage a wee bit better than that guy up there. But the point of what Jesus is trying to bring about is the message is not about the messenger. It's about the receiver of the word. That the responsibility to hear is on the one who has ears. Now think about that. He said that in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you have ears, raise your hand this morning. Now some of you are like, I have ears, but I have to stick these things in them to make them work. So I understand that. But if you have ears to hear, the hearing is your responsibility. Jesus is dividing out those who truly want to hear these things and those who do not. The crowd heard the story and thought, good story, story time's over, I'm going back home. The disciples thought, wait a second, you're, you're the Son of God, you're God incarnate, you're the Messiah. Surely you weren't here to teach me about farming today, Jesus. Help us understand what it is that you're saying. And so Jesus says, well, I've revealed to you the mysteries. And so you think these guys are in good shape now. But in verse 13, he looks at him and he says to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Again, he places it back on the hearer. Do you not understand this parable? To his followers, to the 12. And then he says, how are you going to understand any of the parables. And then he begins with this parable to explain to them how they can understand the parables. And that's what this parable is actually going to do. So we're going to go back through the parable now. Jesus is going to take us step by step, whoop, excuse me, step by step through the parable and explain what he was trying to say with this story. But he's going to do it in a way that he fulfills the understanding so they'll get it. He didn't do that for the crowd. He's only doing it for those who followed up afterwards to ask him. So the only ones that are truly going to understand are the ones who weren't happy not understanding the message. The ones that took responsibility to follow up with him. They're the only ones that are going to grasp this. And so we pick it up here. Uh, In verse 14, the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. Now, all of a sudden, we have a little bit of context for the rest of the parable. He starts out with a fairly simple thing. But again, at the beginning, it was just some sowers going out and sowing seed. It's just a guy putting seed on the ground. Well, if you don't know what the seed is, you could totally miss this particular understanding of the passage. If you came to it with your own ideas apart from what Jesus is explaining here, you could have put anything in there for the seed. The sower is sowing the seed. Well, it's, it's obviously the love of God. He's just sowing the love of God out into the world. But that's not what this pa- parable is about. The, the sower is evil and he's throwing strychnine out into the ground. Because look how terrible it was for the most part. 
bad result, bad result, bad result, only one good result, so it must be a terrible seed he's sowing. See, if you don't understand what he's sowing, the whole parable makes no sense. All those people who left, who didn't seek clarification, they went home with a nice story, but nothing from God. Their life didn't change. They didn't grow in their faith. They went home with nothing. Because they didn't understand the most basic premise here. And that is that the seed that is being sown is the word of God. And from that little piece, you can start to put together the rest of it. Now, Jesus will fill in the details for us. But from that little piece, you can now put together the rest of it. And in this context, if the seed is the word of God, who's the one sowing the word of God? Well, in this context, it would be Jesus, right? He's the one proclaiming the word. He's the one out there preaching, so he's sowing the word of God. He's sending it out. But you're going to find out through the parable, only one of the four groups he mentions are actually getting anything out of his teaching. And it helps us to understand why some people were so angry with him. Because they didn't truly understand what he was doing. They weren't really comprehending it, and they were more concerned about how it impacted them, what it might mean for their future ministry, than they were about what God wanted them to do. So the seed is the word of God, he tells them in verse 14. Then in verse 15, he says, These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So the first group, that first group uh, was the group where the seed was sown alongside the edge of the road. And if you remember right, uh, as that seed was sown, that then these birds would come and they would eat it up. And so Jesus is out there, he's sowing the seed, he's preaching the word. And for some people, before they really gather any of it, Satan's already stolen it from them. Before they really understand anything, Satan's already stolen the word of God from them. Understand this. When I preach, or maybe I'm the one that needs to remember this, but when I preach, there are some of you who are so distracted by Satan that he's so tormenting you that you can't hear the word. That's just who some of you are. And maybe less so in the midst of a church service, but as that word goes out, it's not about the location, it's about the soil. And you're going to find that the soil in these passages is the hearer. That's the one who hears the word of God. And some of you, Satan has such control over you that you never really hear the word of God. And I don't even know why I'm talking to you right now. I'm explaining in detail what's going on here, but you're, you're controlled by Satan. You're not hearing me anyway, right? Well, we'll get to some more of that here in a little bit. And then in verse 16, it says, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word of the Lord, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, there are some people who he describes as rocky ground. He describes the soil of their life as rocky ground. And they will receive the word sometimes with joy initially. They're excited about it at first. But as soon as bad things start happening in their life, they abandon that joy. And it never really takes root in their life. And I think all of us have met people who that's their testimony. Well, I tried that Christianity thing, but God didn't answer all my prayers. I didn't get everything I wanted. I still had sickness in my life. I still had financial difficulty. I still had problems. And if God really loved me, my life would have been perfect from that day forward. And because it isn't, I refuse to, being, to have any joy in this God that you serve. Have you met those people? That's, that's sad. The, the difficulties the afflictions or the persecutions that came their way stole their joy. It's, it's difficult. It's painful to watch it happen. And then there's the next group it gives us in verse 18. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, 
immediately, I'm sorry, I've lost it now, heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so there are a group of people who hear the word, but they're like a thorny ground. When they hear the word, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for stuff, those things become such a distraction to them that those things are still more important than the receiving of the word itself. And so like they want to hear the sermon and they come to church and they hear the sermon, but while they're listening to the sermon, they're also making their laundry list. And they're making their grocery list. They're just going through the whole to-do list. All of this stuff is going on in their mind. And, and several people just lifted their pencils off of their pads. There, like, Oops. Can, it, can he see me right now? Does he know what I'm writing? I thought it would just look like I was taking notes. You know, like there's, a, there's people, and, and most people are actually really good at this. This is how most of us do it. We don't even have to write anything down. We can stare directly at the preacher and nod. But what we're really nodding is each thing that we're putting on our mental list of things we have to do when we get home. Yes, yes, I do receive that. Yes, I do have to complete that. Yes, I do need to send that email. And so you're just kind of going through this and mentally going through that checklist, all of the worries of your life. And then in addition to that, he adds to that list uh, the deceitfulness of riches and things, like all of this stuff that we want, our desire for other things, enter in, and choke out the word that instead of pursuing the things of the word of God, we find ourselves just pursuing things, just more stuff. And all of that stuff that we get becomes a distraction. Let me tell you the, the easiest way I ever learned that stuff becomes a distraction. I always thought when I looked at it that stuff became a distraction because it gave me too many fun things to do. But what I've actually found out is all my stuff needs maintained. Like it's not enough to just have stuff. Now all that stuff needs to be, you know, hey, I've got this great deck at my house. You know what I have to do that stupid thing every year? Sand it down, repaint it. How ridiculous is that? But I have a great deck, but it's one more thing to think about. It's deceptive. And we always think to ourselves, well, if I can just get this next thing, this next thing, this next thing, this next thing, then I'll finally be happy. I've been dealing with this with a car purchase that uh, it was time to uh, give the, uh, the dying minivan to my son. He's 16. He certainly is not going to be getting a car that's uh, in any way nice because he's 16. So he gets the minivan that I was driving. It's got 170,000 miles on it. It's about ready for him. Might be a little early, but still, we're going to let him have it. <laughs> and so then I'm going to go out and I'm going to replace that car. And so I did that. I went out and I was diligent and I was godly about this process. I prayed about it. I looked at every brand of car. I found out who had the best reviews. Now, what I wanted in my heart was a truck. And I didn't just want a truck that became a new project that I had to fix every weekend because that's every truck I've ever had. I wanted a new truck. But do you know that new trucks cost more than anything else on planet Earth? <laughs> and so then I started saying, well, this is how much money I have. I don't want a loan. This is how much money I've saved. So I'm going to buy whatever truck I can get for that amount of money. And it turns out for that amount of money, your truck is going to have 100,000 uh, miles on it. To which I said to myself, I'm not spending that much money on something with 100,000 miles on it. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get an SUV. Turns out SUV is exactly the same as trucks, same price. And so I start working my way down. And now I'm like, okay, I have to have something four-wheel drive because I live on a dirt road. So now I'm looking at Subarus, which I don't even like. But because they're all-wheel drive and they're higher than most cars, I'm like, okay, Subaru Outback, that's the way to go. And then I realize I can't afford a Subaru Outback. And so now I end up with a Subaru Crosstrek, which is basically a clown car. <laughs> and it's a brand new car, and it does everything I need it to do. It's got all kinds of cool buttons and whistles and toys and all kinds of stuff in it. It talks to my phone, does all this great stuff, and I can't stand it. <laughs> it's not what I wanted. And surely I would be happy if I just got what I wanted, right? But no, you find out that even if you have everything that you possibly need, this car does everything I need it to do. It's just not enough. And to make it worse, thing has 10,000 miles on it. Somebody's already hit it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Poor Pastor Sean. Who can afford to buy a new car? Whiner. <laughs> like, right? Somebody's hit my car and it crushed out the front end of it there and popped off this thing that goes around the fog light. I was able to push that little plastic piece that they call a bumper back into place so you can't even tell. But I've got to now go find this little black ring that goes around my fog light so that my car looks nice again. It's just nothing. It's the deceitfulness of riches. You just keep thinking, well, if I get a little bit more, if I get a little bit more, if I get a little bit more. I mean, I'm watching this lottery recently for like a billion dollars. I'm like, then all of my problems would be solved. <laughs> all of that stuff distracts us from hearing the things of God. I'm not opposed to stuff, but just understand that stuff is deceitful and distracting to the things of God. I'm not telling everybody they have to move into a tiny home and only have four shirts. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that you have to guard yourself against the deceitfulness of riches. And then here's the last bit of explanation uh, as he goes on from this in verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And so then there are some who are good soil, and they hear the word, and they receive the word. They accept it, and then that word begins to bear fruit. It begins to grow in their life. See, this wasn't about farming at all, was it? Jesus was trying to help the crowd recognize what they needed to do in order to actually grow, to actually have fruit of their faith in their life. Now, here's what I want us to grasp out of this. First of all, I've already said this once, but I'm going to say it again. This is a judgment of the hearer, not the preacher. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what I mean by this. Sheila and I, when we go visit other churches, I have my phone out the whole time and I'm taking notes of everything how the building is set up, the order of their service. I've got these detailed little notes that I'm typing away in my phone. And then afterwards, I give her the review of the service because that's obviously a service that she would want from me. And so I express to her, these are the good things they did. I love the way they did this. I want to copy this idea. I love the way they set out their building, but here's what they did wrong. <laughs> and then I'll express how they missed this point or they could have said this better in the sermon and all of this stuff. And Sheila says to me, I'm not kidding you, we're on vacation, we're in San Antonio, Texas, at this huge mega church. obviously they're doing something right, apparently, right? And I'm complaining about how dark it is in the sanctuary. And she says, Sean, you ruined church for everybody. <laughs> I'm not ruining church for everybody, I'm trying to help everybody do it better, <laughs> right? That's what she said to me. And it was like a dagger to the heart because it was true. Here's the other person that helped me with this. Luckily, he's already left the room, but Bob Norris helped me with this. I was getting ready to go to a pastor's conference, and he and I were talking about a senior pastor's conference, and I'm like, yeah, here's the great thing about pastor's conferences. I don't care what they're teaching. Every one of those pastors, every one of their sermons are on the Internet somewhere. If I want to hear from them, I can just go download it. I'm not there to hear the teachings. I'm there to network with people. I'm there to get a little bit of rest. And so I'll go, I'll handpick a couple of pastors. I'll go listen. But then I'll go to lunch with a couple of pastors. And then I'll take a couple of pastors. We'll go to a movie or something. Just be a nice conference. And Bob says, in every one of their sermons, there's something for you. It's your job to find it. There should be one thing in every one of those sermons, and it's your job to find it. What did he do? He put it back on the hearer of the word, not on the preacher. So this is this fun thing that's kind of come out of this over the years now, because I've now taught this. I taught it in the Gospel of Matthew. I've taught it in the Gospel of Luke. And now I'm teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Oftentimes, when people come up to me after a service and they say, man, that was a good service, Pastor Sean, I always say that's because you're good soil that the word is working in your life because you're good soil. 
In fact, after last week's sermon where I talked about the blasphemy of the Spirit, I had a handful of people, some personally and some through other people, quiz me on whether they had actually blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And here's what's great about this. In my mind, here's what I'm thinking. Here's somebody who heard the Word of God, accepted it, and was concerned enough to ask follow-up questions to see if it was them. My answer is, if you've already asked that question and you're pursuing finding the answer, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because in your heart is this good soil that wants to receive the word and accept the word. In your heart is a good soil that wants to have fruit and wants to grow, or you wouldn't have cared about last week's sermon. That's powerful to me so easy to recognize in people. I found this great picture. This is a, a website called um, John the Artist instead of John the Baptist. And to make it even more confusing, it's a lady whose name is not John. But she was inspired to start doing gospel paintings uh, after going through seeing how John the Baptist was proclaiming the gospel. She's like, well, I'm not a preacher, but I'm, a, I'm an artist. And so she uses art to proclaim the gospel. She drew this great picture. I hope you guys can see it as clearly as I can. But the first is this grumpy lady. just, And it shows a picture of her heart. And it's the soil beside the road where Satan has come and stolen the word from them. And then the next person on the list is, again, this person who's uh, representing, and they're kind of downtrodden. Because they've been persecuted and afflicted. And so it represents their heart, the persecutions and the afflictions of this word world have kind of just made them downtrodden and they're not capable of really receiving the word. And then the next one is just thinking thoughtfully, looking up, has this worried look on her face. And again, the revelation of her heart is that the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the distraction of things, that those things have taken away her joy and so she's worried and then lastly, you have this happy young man with a happy heart and bearing fruit. It's just a great visual illustration of this. So when I go through all of this, it, it begs this question that I think has to be answered. Are you stuck being the soil that you are? Like, are the people who Satan is stealing the word from, do they just have no, no choice in the matter? Is Satan just left to steal their, their seed and they can't do anything and they'll never hear the word? How discouraging would that be this morning? Or how about these people who just have so many bad things happening in their life? Are they never going to be able to receive the word? Or how about these people who are just happen to be rich? They just happen to have a lot of things or they happen to have a lot of drive. Are they never going to be able to get out of that place where they can receive the word? Will they never get to be the good soil? Well, the answer is no. Jesus didn't teach this so that the people would be discouraged hearers. He wants them to be effectual hearers. He wants them to examine their own heart to see if it's ready to receive the word of God. So I'm going to just give you a few insights, nothing fancy here, just looking at these same pictures, these same passages, and comparing them to other things that Jesus said to see if there's some remedy to work up your soil, to work your soil so that it can be good soil. The preparation that goes into this. Well, the first one, obviously, was Satan stealing the word from you. And you're like, well, what can I do about that? Well, this is great. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching the people to pray, and he says, pray then in this way. One of the things he prays, Lord, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. The first thing you can do to stir up your soil, to make your soil good, is to pray for God to protect you from the schemes of Satan, to protect you from his evil plan to steal the word from you. That when you walk into church, sometimes we think of it this way, when we walk out of church, we're putting on the armor of God because we're going out to do battle with the world. I'm saying as you approach the word of God, whether it's in your own personal time or whether it's coming to church, as you approach the word of God, you're going into spiritual battle just as much. And you need to ask that the God of spiritual things will protect you from the attacks of Satan. That he can defend against Satan stealing the word from you. That he can do that on your behalf. That he can protect you from evil. And then the next group was concerned about 
tribulation and afflictions. And it's amazing to me how many times this concept comes up in Scripture over and over and over again. And what it really is for us, it's just a mind change. How do we think about our afflictions? Jesus never said that you're not going to have afflictions, but what he did do instead was teach us how to deal with our afflictions. And what he says is when you're afflicted, to count it all joy. Now listen, I'm just going to, I'll list out a number of verses. I'll just pick a couple to read, maybe just one because of time. Romans 5.3, Matthew 5.12, Acts 5.41, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, and the list goes on. But there's just a number of verses that have this exact same thing. And it's a mind change. When you're persecuted, when you're afflicted, when you're having tough times, Jesus says, count it all joy. Because I was afflicted and I had hard times. Count it all joy because the prophets of old were persecuted. Count it all joy that you get to be numbered with us. Those that through that affliction will receive the crown of righteousness, the crown of eternity at the end of your life. He's asking us to change our perspective. This same concept comes up all throughout Scripture. Peter has it. Paul has it. And here, of course, we see Jesus at different times in his preaching has that same concept. I'm just going to read the one out of Matthew 12, just since we're looking for the Jesus quote here. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying is your reward was never intended to be here on earth. You will suffer. You will have afflictions here on earth. Even the prophets of old had afflictions and persecution. Your reward is in heaven. Your reward is eternal. So when you're suffering, remind yourself that suffering is always, always, always temporary for those who are in Jesus Christ. And a time of no suffering is established for us. An eternal time as we're in the presence of God. We have to change the way we think about our sufferings. The next one is the one of riches, which I think is interesting as I was complaining about my own riches, right? Like that's essentially what I was doing. I was complaining about how rich I was. We might not have caught it right away, but that was the deal because here I am able to go out and purchase a car that we saved up money for. So I have enough money to purchase a car. Are you kidding me? We've worked our tails off to get rid of all of our debt. We've been diligent to be able to save money, to get to the point where we can buy a car. And I'm complaining? Again, it's a perspective. Let me give you a little bit of a global perspective. If you make $24,000 a year, you are in the top 2.24% of rich people in the world. That means you're richer than 97.76 people, percent of people in the world. If you make $24,000 a year. See, our riches problem, that's made up. We are rich. If you make $50,000 a year, listen to this, you're in the top 0.31% of people in the world. That's crazy. If you make $50,000 a year as a family, you're richer than 99.7% of all the people in the world. You make $100,000 a year. You're in the top 0.08% of richest people on planet Earth. You're richer than 99.92% of the people in the world. Do you see how deceitful riches are? You can be some of the richest people in the world, been blessed by God to be born in a country where that's true, and really, it's not that hard to get to $24,000 a year. I know that sounds mean, but it's really not that hard to do. It might seem like it when you have to work two jobs sometimes. I remember going to college, and Sheila and I combined, because we were in college, we made $9,000 one year. And of course, 
We hadn't had jobs before, so we thought we were rich. We couldn't figure out why we had to buy groceries on our credit card. We didn't know what was going on. We're like, what is the deal here? But it didn't take us long to get to $24,000 a year. It's a perspective issue. The deceitfulness of riches. Listen to this. I'm going to again go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't do it. The problem is if you're worried about your riches of what you're going to buy next or what's the next best thing or how can I get a little bit bigger house or how can I have a nicer car? If those are your worries, you're serving the wrong master. I'm not talking about the guy who, who doesn't have enough food to put on his table. I'm not talking about that guy because the majority of us, that's not us. I'm talking about a person who has everything that they need they're still striving for more. And even though they have everything they need, they can't even see that they have everything that they need. You have to decide who you're serving. Do I exist to win at Monopoly? Or do I exist to build the kingdom of God? Because a lot of us are living like this is the game of Monopoly. I'm going to get, 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 get. I'm going to have more than my friends. I'm going to have better stuff than everybody I know. I'm going to win. You're playing the wrong game. And those types of pursuits make it hard for the Word of God to take root in your life. It also talked about worry. Jesus deals with worry in that same passage in Matthew with the worries of this world. In verse 25, he gives us the cure for anxiety or for worry. He says this in verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? So he gives us three ways to think about worry here so that we can combat the dangerous ground that, d that dwells in our heart because we're worried about other stuff so we can't deal with the things of God. He says three things. The first is this, that your life is more valuable than your stuff in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's given you this amazing gift called your life. And he says just in the fact that you have life, that life in and of itself is more valuable than anything else that you have. It's more valuable. The other thing he says about worry, he says this. In verse 26, are you not worth much more than they? In other words, from God's perspective, when he looks at planet Earth and he sees the birds of the air, God says, I take care of them and you're more important to me than they are. Don't tell Peter, they're going to get mad. As he looks at the birds of the Earth, as beautiful as they are, his creation, he says, you are worth much more to God than they are. So he cares about you more than you can imagine. And then the thirst, third one is this, which I think is just uh, fun just to say. How many of you extended your life by worrying? In fact, the science says worriers live shorter, more likely to have heart attacks, more likely to break down, because all they do is they worry, worry, worry. They start to cycle on all of their worries. And it just becomes overwhelming to them. And it increases their stress level, which gives them one more thing to worry about. Heart disease, right? God says, relax. Each day has enough to worry about for itself. Take care of today, because it's the only day you've been promised. And so today, you're receiving the word. Let your focus be 
on that. And then I would add to that, just as a reminder from the context here, beyond these four soils, I would say there's one other thing. Don't just hear the word, hear it so that you understand it. Ask yourselves questions as you're going through it. Ask questions of the people who you meet with. Ask questions of your friends and family that heard the same sermon. Ask questions of the pastor who preached it. As you do that, you're growing in that. You're understanding the word way more than you ever would. If if you just heard it, it goes in, and then nothing is ever done with it. That's unfortunately what happens to a lot of Christians. What kind of soil are you? Amen. Heavenly Father, I would pray for myself first, that I would be examining myself, that I wouldn't just be preparing the word to give it, but I would first receive the word, and from what I've received, be able to proclaim it to others. And then, Father, that those who would hear the word today, or maybe through a a sermon CD or online or something like that in the future, that they would hear this message and it would change how they approach your word. Whether they're reading it for themselves or hearing a sermon, Lord, that they would come into it prayed up. They would ask you to keep Satan at bay. Father, they would come into it not overwhelmed by their afflictions, not overwhelmed by their worries, not overwhelmed by their desires, their wants, their needs, that they would set all of those things aside for the time that they're in the Word so that they can hear directly from you. Father, I pray that you would then take that Word and you would do the work of refining your people, that what came out at the end would be this amazing, beautiful, fruitful Christian life. Some 30 some 50 and some 100 fold, that more than was invested in them would be produced by their own life. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.